Before we begin our study of Jeremiah tonight, I want to talk just a minute about a comment I made as we were just finishing up the Oneg over at the Shabbat table. And that has to do with not every version of the Bible is a translation. And most of you or all of you may know that already, or some of you may not. The King James, New King James, even the NIV are translations of a Greek text. Granted, the NIV is from a different Greek text, and one that I would say is corrupted. But I saw on YouTube this week a young pastor who was very sincere, saying that if somebody tells you you should be keeping the Sabbath, they're a false teacher and you should run. And he turned to his Bible, which is the New Living Translation, which is up on the screen here. If you, if you guys would turn, please, to Colossians chapter 2, I want to show you why he was so sincere in teaching that the Bible says we are not supposed to keep the Sabbath. So, turn where? Colossians chapter 2, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 2, verse 16. See, I'm hearing somebody out and go to meeting land that has an open mic. If we can close that, please. In my Bible, the New King James, Colossians 2, 16 and 17 say, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Messiah. The NIV has changed verse 17, in which instead of saying which are, they changed it to which were a shadow of things to come. But nobody has done anything like I just saw in the New Living Translation. Let me read it as you read along in your Bible. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. What did they add that's not in the Greek text at all? Not. That word not. So his Bible, he opens it up, it's the only Bible he knows. He thinks it's the word of God. And it says, don't let anyone condemn you for not celebrating the Sabbaths and the holy days. And he, he had no idea, I'm sure, that his Bible is not a translation but a paraphrase, meaning the translators put what they wish the Bible had said rather than what it does say. So when you get into a discussion with somebody about a text in Scripture and they say, that's not what my Bible says, the first question you ought to ask is, what translation or what version are you using so we can make sure that we're comparing apples to apples, not apples to oranges? Reminded me of a discussion I had out in Nebraska with a pastor who again was a young man and very sincere, but he was using the New Living Translation as well. And he kept saying, my Bible doesn't say what you're saying. I said, well, you've got to understand your Bible is not a translation. Your Bible is simply a paraphrase. He's, no, it's not. I said, well, open up to the front and let's look at those notes in the front where it says, by the way, this is not a translation. He just never read that part before. <laughs> so he thought that he was reading the word of God when he was actually reading somebody's doctrinal preferences 
what they wish the Bible had said. So just a word of caution, because I know a lot of you discuss scriptures with other people who say, my Bible doesn't say that. Maybe it doesn't. If, if that's the case, of course, what do you do? You say, may I buy you a decent Bible? <laughs> okay. Yes, I do. It is a misnomer. It's not an unintentional misnomer either, I don't think. They're intending to mislead people badly. Okay, we're today in which book? Jeremiah. Jeremiah, chapter 8, verse 20. Let me give you a chance to get there. Of course, I've already started the recording, so maybe I should just start talking. Jeremiah, what, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 20. Are we ready? Okay. Jeremiah chapter 8. I need to back up for a moment to get us clearly looking and understand who's speaking because we keep changing who's speaking in these verses and it doesn't always come across. In verse 17 it said, For behold, I will send serpents. Who was the I? That was the Lord. Verse 18 says, I would comfort myself in Syrah. Who's the I? That's Jeremiah. When we come to verse 19, listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? We're back to? God. No, back to Judah. Judah. Yeah, this is Judah crying over her children that are in captivity. And it's specifically referring to the time of the final fall harvest. So what is the final fall harvest in the Leviticus 23 outline of the Moedim? So the last one is? Sukkot. Sukkot. Tabernacles. Tabernacles is when you have fully gathered in, right? So let's read these verses, 19. Listen, exclamation mark. You know what that exclamation mark means? The voice. So it's literally, hear the voice. That is the voice of my children crying. The cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. That's why it's Judah. Judah's people are not there anymore. They're in captivity in Babylon. They're gone. It's not the Lord in Zion or Zion. It's not her king in her. So where should God's people be if God is in Jerusalem? They should be in Jerusalem. So Judah's weeping. My children are gone into captivity. And then Judas asks, now why is it? How could God allow this to happen? He says, why have they provoked me? Now we're back to the Lord speaking. Why have they provoked me to anger? So Judah saying, my children, my children, Lord saying, why did they choose to provoke me to anger? And how do they do that? It says, with their carved images, with foreign idols. 
So the Lord right here says the children of Judah are gone into captivity because they turned away from the true and living God. What does Deuteronomy 8.11 say happens if you forget the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God? You have what? You have forgotten God, forsaken God. We find both terms. They mean the same thing. They turn their back on God. So in verse 20, the harvest is past. The summer is ended and we are not saved. We're back to Judah. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. To what time is it? It's the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles is about God dwelling amongst men, right? God's dwelling in Jerusalem. And the children of Israel, they're not there. But they should be. At the Feast of Tabernacles, when it's fully fulfilled, who's supposed to be there to worship the Lord? Everybody. Everybody. So you see the pain on all sides. Jeremiah is weeping over the people. Judah, the country, the nation is weeping over his children that are gone. The Lord is saying, they did it. They turned their backs on me. They provoked me to anger with their carved images, with their foreign idols. But Judah says the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. So what is Judah looking forward to? There's going to be coming a day soon that the Lord will return, right? Will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And what does Judah want? Judah wants to be there. They want to be in God's presence. So when you realize that you are not in God's presence because you sinned, what do you do? Turn to Acts chapter 2. It's the same question that the Jews and proselytes ask of Peter on the day of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, whichever term you prefer. I prefer Shavuot. I don't know about you. Because it helps me when I come to interpreting Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Because that word weeks in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 is not Shavuot. It's Shavuim. So we know it's not talking about 70 weeks. It's talking about 77s. Shavuot is feminine. Shavuim is masculine. Yes, sir. You know, and in my experience, I've, I've found that people, when you use the word Pentecost, when you use the word Pentecost, people view that as a standalone event. People, do, they have never been told that that's anything other than a standalone event in most cases, right? They have no idea it's from Leviticus chapter 23 that it's been going on for 20, for how many years? 1,500 years before Messiah was even <clears throat> born. So today, that's what, 3,500 years. It's an ancient ceremony. Yeah, so I mean, I find it ironic, you know, Pentecostals call themselves Pentecostal based on Pentecost. Pentecostals call themselves Pentecostal based on Pentecost. And have, <laughs> and have no idea what it means. So they should be calling themselves like Shavuotals or something? <laughs> yeah, they should be calling themselves Shavuotals. Yeah, that's a good word. <laughs> Some days call themselves Christians and they have no idea what that means either. Yeah. Acts chapter 2. 
Verse 37. And I know you guys all know this. But it's good to be reminded sometimes even when we know. It says, can I please turn off sharing of this screen for all? I did. Hopefully, hopefully it's just an old note. Okay. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37, Peter has told the assemblage of Jews and proselytes that are Gentile converts from around the world that have come up to Jerusalem because of the Feast of Weeks, which in the Greek is Pentecost, which means 50 days. And he's told them that Messiah was crucified because of the hardness of their hearts. Because they sinned and turned away from God. Verse 37 says, Now when he heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Prior to this preaching, did they have any problem with what had been done? No, they didn't realize they had sinned, that they had come against God in the way that they had. Now that Peter's made it clear that they have rebelled against God, their reaction is now what? And what does he say? Then Peter said to them, what's the very first word? Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Yeshua the Messiah for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. What does that mean, all who are afar off? Talking about the Gentiles. Yep, us. Even way off in the future. Does it also mean futuristic? That's what I just said, yep. Well, you just said Gentiles. Well, I was still speaking as you raised your hand. Yes, that's exactly right. Includes us in the future. Those of us who are here today. So if you turn back to Jeremiah 8. What God is trying to get Israel to understand is they have sinned because they don't think they have. They cut crashes in the walls of the temple. They sacrificed children to Moloch. They bowed in the courts of God's temple to the rising sun, and they don't think they've done anything wrong. And you look at me and go, that's not possible. The answer is yes, when they've got false prophets telling them they've done nothing wrong. That so long as they bring God a lamb now and then, they can worship these other gods, and God doesn't have any problem with it. And you say, but that's not in the Bible that you can do that. That's why they're false prophets and not true prophets. So verse 20, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. So we know there has to be some repentance going on, but there won't be any repentance until Judah and the rest of Israel decide they have sinned. We have sinned. So verse 21 and 22, we're back to Jeremiah. Back to Jeremiah. Verse 21 says, For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. Jeremiah's heart is torn over his people. Didn't even the Apostle Paul say, If I could, I would give up my salvation to save my people? Jeremiah had the same heart. It hurts. Look at my people who are not saved, who are going to suffer God's eternal judgment. He says, I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no bomb in Gilead? That's bomb, B-A-L-M. There's no explosives in there. But what is bomb? 
It's a healing ointment made from the Styrax tree. S-T-Y-R-A-X. I don't have one of those growing in my backyard, but you might. It's a resin of the Styrax tree that's used to make it. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 37. S-T-Y-R-A-X. Healing ointment made from the resin of the Styrax tree. Genesis chapter 37, verse 25. It was a major produce of the mountains of Gilead, which are on the east side of the Jordan River, in what is today Jordan. It says in Genesis 37, verse 25, And they sat down to eat a meal... Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites, Ishmaelites descend from who? Ishmael. Coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on the way to carry them down to Egypt. So those were the produce of the mountains of Gilead that they were taking down to sell in Egypt, and that's how the brothers say, hey, let's just send Joseph down to Egypt in a caravan. When he says in verse 26, so Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? It means, hey, we can get some money for him if we sell him as a slave. Why should we go home empty-handed when we can put some gold in our pocket? Isn't that nice of them? So back to Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 22. Is there no bomb in Gilead? Bomb was healing ointment. To cover over a wound. So if you get down to the bottom of it, they're saying, is there nothing to cover over the sins of the children of Israel? Well, if they come and do the Day of Atonement ceremonies at the temple, no, no. They're in captivity, they can't. So what atonement do they have? What covering do they have to put over their sin at the moment? In captivity, they have none. Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Do they need balm and physicians to cure their spiritual ills? No. They need repentance. So they're looking for a physical cure to a spiritual problem. That doesn't work, does it? So let's come to verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 1. I'll get it together in a minute. <clears throat> what chapter 9 is about is that disobedience brings about God's judgment. So once you realize, you know what? We're being punished by God. God doesn't punish people for doing right things. You think maybe we did something wrong? Yeah, so disobedience brings God's judgment. How many people think that was only in the Old Testament, but now God's good with sin? I heard more preachers say that this week. That sin was only a problem in the Old Testament. If you've walked down the aisle, repeated after the pastor, and got your dunking up front, then you can't sin anymore. Whatever you do is right. Then why would Paul make the comment in Acts that all men everywhere should repent? 
All men everywhere should repent. Would you believe that scripture is about to come up here pretty soon? Yeah. If God expected people to repent before Messiah came, how much more after he's come? Scripture says if you go back to your sin, what have you made the sacrifice of Messiah worth? You've made it worth nothing. Like a dog returning to its vomits, the very words they use. Yes, sir. I think those same pastors that you're quoting in answer to his comment would say, but this was during the period of time when the law was passing away. Hebrew says it's passing away, the Old Covenant. So Peter and Paul and those people, they, they're in that period, so they considered sin, but now it's passed away and you don't have to worry about it. Yep, unfortunately the Bible didn't say that. It didn't say that, but that's what they would answer you. It may well be. In fact, one of them came out so boldly this week and to say, would y'all quit quoting Jesus to me? Jesus is not relevant to the church. He's Old Testament. He's Old Testament. Really? Yeah. That, and don't quote me from Revelation because that's for the Jewish people. If Paul didn't write it, don't tell me about it. Paul didn't die for you. And the New Covenant did not come into existence during the time of Jesus. It, it was something he predicted that was going to come later after the Old but, away. So let's go back to Jeremiah 9, verse 1. You know who's talking now because it says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. This is Jeremiah. Do you know what they called Jeremiah? The weeping prophet. Yeah. He says, Oh, I wish I could just cry my eyes out. That I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah is weeping for those who chose death over repentance. And I pick those words carefully. They chose death rather than repenting. It was a conscious choice. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3. Let's start in verse 4. Get a running start at it. But the key verses are 8 through 10. Verse 4, I want to start because the first word is what? Whoever. What does whoever mean? That's any, you can't get any more inclusive than whoever. That's everybody. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Heard a pastor today quoting these words in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, etc. And then encourage people, so get up Sunday morning and get to church so you can have your communion and put up your Christmas tree. It's like, uh, we're just not on the same page. Verse 5 says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. So if you are in Messiah, can you continue in sin that grace may abound? That's Romans 6.1, and verse 2 says, No. Whoever abides in him, verse 6 says, does not sin. 
What is John chapter 15 all about? I'm the true vine, abide in me. John says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him, which means if you can continue to walk in sin, because you don't know him, which means he doesn't know you either. Why does John write these words? It's 30 years after the death of all the other apostles. And the church is going off the rails. It's about the same time that he writes in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. About how the Nicolaitans had brought in their doctrine of antinomianism. That the law has been abolished. We can sin all we want to now. And John's saying, no, no children. Don't think that. Verse 7, little children. See, I wasn't making it up. He refers to us as little children. Let no one deceive you. Why would he say that? Because the false teachers are doing everything they can do to deceive us. He who practices righteousness is righteous. Just as he is righteous. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. Messiah told us, if you're practicing lawlessness, what's he going to tell you come judgment day? I never knew you. Depart from me. Verse 8. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested. That he might destroy the works of the devil. Messiah came in the flesh so that he could get us to stop sinning. As the devil wants us to sin. Verse 9 says, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. Now this doesn't mean we're not going to stub our toe in the middle of the night and say something we wish we hadn't. That's not what it's saying. It's saying if you can live a lifetime breaking God's commandments, what does this say? That you have not been born of God. Verse 10 says, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. It means this is how you can tell one from the other. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Put that in the other tense. Whoever practices lawlessness is not of God. It's the same thing, right? One's just in the negative, one's in the positive. So how many of you think that this says it's okay to go sin? How many of you realize that when, when you say, when, when Jesus cast the demons out of the person and forgave them of their sins, he said, go and sin some more. Where did he say, where did he say that? The answer is never. He always said what? Go and sin no more. Sin no more. It's been two weeks ago since I heard a preacher say, if you tell people that they need to stop sinning, you're of the devil. Because it's not possible to stop sinning. Therefore, you're lying to folks. What did Messiah say? Go and sin no more. Yes, sir. Looking back at verse 8. Looking back at verse 8. The purpose of the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Yes, a lot of people teach that Jesus came to set us free from the law. But if you take out the word devil here in verse 8 and put in lawlessness, you're saying the same thing. Yes, because it says he was manifested to destroy the works of lawlessness. 
Yes, he was manifested to destroy the works of lawlessness. The works of the devil are lawlessness. That's what lawlessness is. So what was he setting us free from? The law of lawlessness. He set us free from lawlessness. Where do we get the idea that Satan wants us to break God's commandments? Is it not Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 which puts it in black and white? We've all read those words, right? If Yeshua came to abolish the law, and what's the purpose of the Antichrist? And what's the purpose of the Antichrist besides that? If Yeshua is the Word incarnate and he came to abolish himself, it makes no sense. It's like the people who read Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, without reading verse 14. And the way they read it, that means Yeshua came and destroyed God. That's not what he did. Wait, Yeshua is presented to Jewish people and Jewish people and the rest of the world. I mean, you can see how Jewish people would read Daniel 7:25 and walk away with that misunderstanding. You can see how people can Jewish people in particular can read Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 and walk away and say, "Hey, that's talking about Yeshua." Yeah. There are many Jewish commentaries I've read that say exactly that. What more do we need to say about Jesus of Nazareth than these words? You know, and if that's, if that's their take on that, then, I mean, that should cause us as teachers to... Yeah, if that's their understanding based upon what the church is teaching, and we as teachers should say, well, that's not a message we want to give. Because the scripture says what? The gospel is to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the world. Yeah, let's keep studying. It's going to get harder. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Well, you almost think this would have come up during the time of Teshuvah, wouldn't you? Oh, you're right. It is the time of Teshuvah. So maybe it's an appropriate time. You guys know 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 through chapter 7 verse 1. The opposites. You can't mix righteousness and lawlessness. Can't can't mix light with darkness. But it doesn't end at chapter seven, verse one. So I brought us here to look at verse ten, because chapter six, fourteen through chapter seven, verse one is about how we need to repent. We need to turn away from the things that are lawless, from the things that are in darkness, from the things that are of the devil, and turn back to the things that are of God. Verse 10 says, 2 Corinthians 7.10, you with me? It says, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Godly sorrow, that is sorrow over our sins, the broken heartedness we read in Acts chapter 2, produces repentance, which leads to salvation. What did Peter say in Acts chapter 2? Repent, be baptized in the name for their mission is sins. How many want salvation? I know I sure do. Yeah, but that's not biblical. I yeah. I'm just saying, like, but you're right, a lot of teachers say just that. What if you don't? 
if you don't work, then how are you going to be judged by your works when you get to heaven? The answer is, it's the works you do once you are saved. <laughs> so salvation produces works. Works don't produce salvation. And that's the message Paul was having to fight and walk that line, trying to tell people they need to keep God's commandments, but that's not the way you get saved. You get saved first by faith, then you walk out your salvation through keeping of God's commandments. But salvation does not come from works. Works come from salvation. And what the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 2 is that if you're not walking in righteousness, it's because you didn't get saved. Is that not what it's trying to tell us? Yep, you repent, you turn to God, and then you do works befitting repentance. Even John said that right in Matthew chapter 3 when this, the scribes and Pharisees came, the Pharisees and Sadducees even, to say, hey, we want to be baptized too. He said, then do works befitting repentance. Meaning, if you have truly repented, let's see it. What did he know? He knew they hadn't repented. And that's where people fall short in their understanding of the Old Testament. You didn't bring the lamb to get repentance. You repented of the sin, then you brought the lamb to have the blood cover over. And Isaiah is all about, the first few chapters is, you didn't repent. You want to bring the lamb without repentance. Doesn't work that way. In the millennial kingdom, will there be sacrifices? Um, in the millennial kingdom, will there be sacrifices? Yeah. Yeah, you start reading in Isaiah chapter 43. As soon as Messiah sits in the. In, I'm sorry, yeah, Ezekiel 43. As soon as Messiah sits in the temple on the throne, the sacrifices resume. I mean, I, I knew there would be with the festivals, but I was just wondering... No, no, not just with the festivals. Yeah, that's what I wanted to They start every day. Yeah. In fact, from the time Messiah sits down, they go through a cycle, they do sacrifices every day to cleanse the altar, and then the daily sacrifices resume as they have in the past. Why? Because sin never t was never taken away by the sacrifices. It was a teaching point and a point of obedience. Yeah, that's right. And Messiah will be sitting on the throne and they'll be offering sacrifices and that's something that people do not understand. Because they didn't read it in Acts or Romans. But... Wayne? Yes, ma'am? Will Messiah be performing the sacrifices at the time when it's required by the high priest to do so? No, 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 Messiah is not the high priest in the earthly temple. He's the high priest in the heavenly temple. The Levites will be doing the sacrifices in the earthly temple just as they were in the past. That never changes. Thank you. So when Hebrews tells us that Messiah is our high priest, he's the high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, not the earthly sanctuary. Okay. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. You know, I don't think people understand the, 
the teaching significance of the sacrifice. Right. They're taught that that's how people got saved in the past. Their sins were washed away with the blood of the sacrifices. And what does Galatians 3 tell us? It was never for salvation. I mean, because even the daily sacrifice, you read back in the Torah about the, the daily sacrifice, there was a daily sacrifice at 9 a.m. in the morning, a daily sacrifice at 3 in the afternoon. Every day they yep. were supposed to do that. Every day, call the Tamid. So what, I mean, what was that significant for when Messiah was resurrected, you know, when he was nailed to the tree and then when he died? I mean, yep. if, they were, if they were rehearsing it the way they were supposed to be with fidelity, Yep. Yep. Every one of the sacrifices was to point us to Messiah. That's why Hebrews talks about the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. They were to teach us about Messiah who would come and be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Absolutely right. Go to Romans 2, verses 6 to 8. sacrifices for what I mean if Jesus is there he's the blood his blood is shed he behold the Lamb of God that take away yep. the sins of the world why are we sacrificing okay so let me explain that suppose you're not saved when the rapture comes it's a hypothetical and you survive the seven-year tribulation period because you got saved during the tribulation period and when Messiah returns and establishes the kingdom you go into the kingdom alive. And then in the kingdom you have children. Are the children born saved? How do you teach the children what the sacrifice, the death of Messiah meant? So when you take the lamb into the house and keep it for a few days and the children play with it and then Papa has to kill the lamb, do you think the children are going to say, Daddy, Daddy, why does that lamb have to die? And daddy says, well, honey, we've all sinned and the wages of sin is death. And this lamb has to die because it's innocent. And God accepts an innocent substitute in place of you who are guilty. But this blood of this lamb can only cover over the sin. It can't take it away. Well, daddy, then how do we take away the sin? What can take away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Yeshua. He died 2,000 years ago, nailed to a tree in Israel, so that you could have eternal life if you want to be saved. That's why. So we can teach the children. Romans 2. I said 6 to 8, but that starts in the middle of a sentence. So we'll start in verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart. Again, what's impenitent mean? Unrepentant. You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. What's the day of wrath? It's the day of the Lord, right? And revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So if you refuse to repent, it says you are storing up for yourself wrath. Verse 6, who are rendered to each one according to his deeds. Is that word ergon? Which means the works. What have you done? 
Even in Revelation 22, it says the rewards are based upon our works. What have we done? Verse 7 says, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. What is the truth? Psalm 119 verse 142. The Torah, the commandments of God. But wait a minute. How does the Torah apply to the new covenant? In the new covenant, the Torah is written on our hearts. It didn't go away. It went from being external to internal. From being something we have to go somewhere to read to something written upon our hearts and minds. It says, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. What comes? Indignation and wrath. Tribulation and anguish. And every son of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, meaning the Gentile. So what's that trying to tell us? If we are walking in sin, are we on the path to eternal life? It says we are not. What is sin? Lawlessness. What is that word in Greek? Anomia. A means what? Contrary or opposed to. And nomos is the law, the law of God, the Torah. So if we're walking contrary to the Torah, we're walking in lawlessness. And that is sin. Go to Romans chapter 21. Oops, I got a, a chat out there. Let's see what it says. It's Revelation 21. Thank you. The question says, will Messiah be in heaven and in earth at the same time during the millennium? The answer is no, he'll be on earth, not in heaven. So it's Revelation 21.8. Whenever I say something and the chapter is higher than the book goes, I probably didn't read my own writing, right? Revelation 21 verse 8. Ah, but we have to look at verse 7 first. He who overcomes, we know what an overcomer is from 1 John chapter 5. Shall inherit all things, I will be as God, he shall be my son. But thee but the means, these aren't the overcomers. But the cowardly, unbelieving, what's that mean? Apistas, right? Without faith. Abominable. Oh, Leviticus 11 says, if you eat unclean things like piggies, it makes you what? Abominable in the eyes of God. Murderers. Sexually immoral. Sorcerers, which means in, it includes those abusing drugs recreationally. Idolaters. And all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So if you continue to walk in sin, are you an overcomer? The answer is no. So those seven promises in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are not for you. If you decide my sin is too important to me. I will live life my way and then I'll suffer the consequences. Well people who say that, it's actually they don't have faith. They don't think they're going to suffer the consequences. But once you're in the lake of fire, how do you get out? You can't. Yes ma'am. Okay. It says, the way I'm looking at it, we're in the 
like Adam and Eve. It was it was sinless in the in the garden. But now we've been raptured, we've been replaced. I don't understand why sin has to be there if the atonement of Yeshua's blood took away the sin. If they're all saved, why does the baby have to be born in sin? Ah. The curse has not been removed at that point. It is not like the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. All those human beings, not the raptured and resurrected saints, but those that are still in human mortal bodies, are still flesh and blood. Right. When they have children, those children are not born saved. They have to decide for themselves. Will they be saved or not? Sin is not wiped out of the world until after the millennial kingdom. The final battle. I guess I'm thinking of the whole entire thing and it's just for a period of time I'm assuming because it still doesn't you know if, if he done away with everything he hasn't done away with everything because the ones that were coming into uh, makes a little more sense to my brain okay turn to Revelation 21 to answer that a little better Revelation 21 is after the millennial kingdom. We come to the times of the new heaven, new earth. The great white throne judgment has been taken place. Satan has been cast into the lake of fire. All the unsaved have been cast into the lake of fire. And the world has been cleansed of sin. That's after the millennial kingdom. So verse 1 of chapter 21 of Revelation says... Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth that's actually refreshed, renewed. Neos is not used here, it's kainos. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea, that's Gentiles, no more pagans. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's the point where there is no more sin. So, yeah. Will we be doing sin offerings? No, because there isn't any more sin. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Proverbs chapter 28. Proverbs chapter 28. Verse 13. I may as well read verse 9 too. Okay. Proverbs 28 9 says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the Torah, the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Yeah. Let's add verse 7 too. Whoever keeps the law is a discerning son. Do you want to be a discerning child of God? Keep the Torah. But now the woman came for was verse 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper. The word cover there means to hide them. 
to repent, to pretend they didn't happen. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Notice it doesn't say whoever confesses. It says whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. If you confess and forsake them, what do you call that? That's repentance. So if you try and hide this sin and continue in it, you just don't want anybody to know it's going on and think, ha, 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 I deceived God. He doesn't know. Then you're just fooling yourself. It totally trumps the whole idea that repentance is just changing your mind about who Jesus is. Yep. How many times in the scriptures say did not repent of there and then list a bunch of sins? Or you know, people's idea of repentance is just you know, being sorry. Being sorry is something that should lead you to repent, but it's not repentance. Yeah, worldly sorry. Sorrow is just, I'm sorry, I feel bad. That doesn't do anything. Godly sorrow leads to the action of repentance, which leads to salvation. Oh, then do we earn our salvation? No. Salvation comes by faith and faith alone. Good point, Stan. Go to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. Which comes real close to the Acts 17 verse that Daniel was quoting a few minutes ago that I said is coming. But this one will set that one up. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. Yeah, it may well have. Peter's sometimes hard to find. He's right before 1 John. Some of these Bibles have pages that are real, real thin. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but what? That all should come to repentance. That's what God wants. But the word that I brought us here to look at is the word all. Who does God say needs to repent? Everybody. Well, Scripture says we've all sinned. Therefore, we all need to repent. This parallels Ezekiel. Where God says, I take no pleasure in the death even of an unrighteous man. God's heart is exactly what he expressed in Deuteronomy 30. I said before you today, life and death choose life. That's what God wants. But if you prefer death, God will do anything and everything he can do to change your mind. But if you're absolutely set on it, you will die. I don't believe anybody really prefers death. I believe they just don't believe it's going to happen. That's exactly the way I believe. As I said about 20 minutes ago, if you wind back the tape, yeah. it's not that they really want it. It's that they don't believe it will happen. Go back to Acts 17. Well, that goes to the lies now that God is just such a loving God and he's 
is just a tiptoe through the tree kind of God, and you can do whatever you want to. Yeah, there's one verse in the Bible that says God is love. If you take that out of context and put it on a t-shirt and think that's the only verse I need to know in the whole Bible, you can be misled. Acts 17 verse 30 is the one that Daniel quoted a little while ago. Let's make sure we all put eyes on it. And we'll go past 30 to 31 and read what because is there for. So verse 30, Acts 17.30. Everybody got it? Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, which means God didn't rain down fire and brimstone on every person in every nation constantly for the last 6,000 years. It says, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because... Why does he command all men everywhere to repent? Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. The book of John says God has given all judgment to the Son. It says he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So for all those preachers out there that you can listen to that say repentance is not necessary. God doesn't want it. What does the scripture say? Oh, I'm sorry, but Paul didn't write this. That was Luke who wrote it. Okay. Yeah, but Paul said it. Right. Right. When they put the word overlooked in here, they make us think something that is not actually correct. God overlooks nothing. So it's, it's like God is giving them time to repent. That's, what, that's the gist of it. That's the gist of it. That's why I put it with Second Peter 3. God wants everyone to repent. He gives us the opportunity to repent. And when we choose not to, what's the next word in Second Peter? But. but. Yeah. Let's go to Galatians 5. Galatians 5. One way people misread Paul is Peter warned is they think when Paul speaks against the, the Torah, against the law, the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God, that he means we shouldn't keep it. When he speaks against it, he's talking about be careful how you use it. So if you look at verse 4, it says, You have become estranged from Messiah, you who attempt to be justified by law. That's what's not possible. You cannot be saved by keeping commandments. It's not going to work. Why? Because to break one is to break them all. Is there anyone out there that's willing to put up their hand to say, I am sinless and have always been? I have not broken a single commandment. If you do, you're lying, and that's a sin. So, <laughs> so Galatians 5, verses 19 to 21. Now, it's still not now, it's just a hand. The works of the flesh are evident. Are works of the flesh good things or bad things? Good. 
bad things, which are adultery. Would you believe the NIV omits adultery? It should be there. Adultery. Fornication. Uncleanness. Lewdness. Uncleanness, all kinds. So eat a piggy, you're unclean. It's not the only kind of uncleanness. Sitting amongst the tombs is also uncleanness. This is any kind of uncleanness. Verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, which includes drug abuse, hatred, hate your brother without cause. What did Messiah say? That's like murder. Contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders. And I feel it's murders. Drunkenness, reveries, and the like. What does and the like mean? It's not an exhaustive list. It's just some examples. Just as I also told you in times past that those who practice such things, what are they practicing? They practice the lifestyle of lawlessness. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Who wrote Galatians? Paul did. And I don't think he stuttered once in that. So what are we supposed to do then? Repent, stop doing these. Seems like such a simple concept. It does. It seems like a very simple concept, but somehow it's causing people lots of trouble. Let's go back to Jeremiah. Chapter 9. We're all the way up to verse 2. Everybody go, woohoo! Jeremiah continues, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers. He's talking about himself. He wishes he could just go off into the wilderness by himself. That I might leave my people and go from them. Why? Because they're not listening. It's breaking his heart that he's preaching repentance and righteousness. And they won't listen. They won't listen because there's one of him and there's hundreds of false prophets saying, oh, don't listen to that madman. For they are all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. And it literally, if you look at the scripture, is not, oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers. It's literally, who will give me? In the wilderness, a lodging place for travelers. And of course he knows the answer is nobody. He's going to have to stand in there and fight the good fight. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's talking to a group of people that think they're righteous and they're not. Because you have, for every one righteous prophet, you have 10,000 false prophets and false teachers telling them the complete opposite of what they want to hear. Right, they're tickling their ears, just like 2 Timothy chapter 4. So it's the same thing we, we say today. You've got, you've got one person saying keep the Sabbath, but 10,000 people saying no, keep Sunday. So you're, you, know, you can understand this, this plight. 
I do understand the plight. What about today? Yep, that's right ex exactly along in line with what Daniel was saying. I know none of you have ever been rebuked by people saying, oh, you're in a cult. You shouldn't be keeping the Sabbath. You ought to be eating piggies. I'm looking at Jen. I can see you go, oh, yes, we do. Yeah, believe it or not, I run into the same thing. But my preacher says, okay, what verse does he get? Well, none. What do you mean, none? That should be a flag. But let's go back to... Daniel, Jeremiah chapter 9. We'll go to Jeremiah chapter 9. We'll keep going. Verse 3. Referring especially to the false prophets, but also to those that are listening to the false prophets. It says, And like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, says the Lord. So verses 1 and 2 were Jeremiah, now we're back to the Lord. So when it says in verse 3, And like their bow they have bent their tongues for lies, they're saying that they're using lies to destroy people. Those false prophets, when they preach and prophesy lies, are leading people not only to physical death, but to eternal death in the lake of fire. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. I don't mean to be criticizing the other preachers as much as it sounds like. I just don't want you being misled by them. Hope you understand that. So First Timothy chapter 1, beginning verse 8 says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Meaning for what? Not to earn your salvation, but to demonstrate, if you love me, comma, keep my commandments. Do you love the Lord? Then when you walk in the law, you're using the law lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made or laid down on a righteous person. But for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners... A person who is righteous is walking in the, accordance with the commandments of the Torah. But the commandments of God are here to show people who are walking in sin that what they're doing is wrong. And that it's leading them to eternal judgment that they're not going to like. Verse 9 goes on to say, for the unholy and profane. Unholy. Uh-oh. For murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Verse 
If God had never said, thou shalt not X, how would we know X was wrong? Wayne, as we were talking about people not wanting to take all of it, they just want bits and pieces, reminded me of when I first got saved. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of different religious people around me everywhere. And I said, well, God, why didn't you just save me a Baptist so I could smoke and do this and do that? And I wouldn't, because I got saved in what they call a Pentecostal church. But we had 29 prominent teachings that by George smoking and all that stuff wasn't in there. But they, I, I couldn't do it, but why'd they get to do it, God? That's why people want to not know the truth, because then they feel good within themselves. Yeah, they feel good about their sin if they don't know it's wrong. Yeah, they don't want to be told it's wrong because then they need to make a decision. Do I continue to walk in sin or do I repent? Yeah, I can't tell you how many people have said, I wish you never told me any of this. Revelation chapter 2. Because they think if they never heard any of this, then it wouldn't have been wrong. But that's not a right conclusion Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 to the angel of the church of Ephesus what angel are we talking about the pastor right these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand anybody know who that is that's Messiah walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So all the way back in the first century, does this say they were false teachers? Going around to the various churches telling them that they did not need to walk in righteousness? Yeah. So it's not a new thing. How long has Satan been at work trying to get people to break God's commandments? It's from the beginning, right? Right from the Garden of Eden. Go to Revelation 21, verse 8, since we're in Revelation. Somebody say, didn't we read this a little while ago? Yeah, but we're going to read it again. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. A member of Congress this week, by the name of, well, let's just use initials, AOC, so you don't know who I'm talking about, was in Congress testifying to the fact that she is a woman of sincere faith and she is tired of people using the Bible to try and say things like homosexuality are wrong that abortion are wrong she's a woman of faith she's a Christian she knows the Bible what does this say do we know what sexually immoral means do we know what murder means? Good, okay. You don't need to know it's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez representing New York. Okay. 
Okay, back to Jeremiah. <laughs> Maybe one has. I don't know. I don't know. Jeremiah 9, we're still in verse 3. And like their bow, they bent their tongues for lies. What does the Bible say about all liars? They have their part in thee. They get fire, so don't do it. They're not valiant for the truth on the earth. They're not valiant for the truth. What does it mean, not valiant? They're not defenders. They don't have the zeal. They don't want the truth. They prefer the lie. For they proceed from evil to evil and do not know me, says the Lord. There's a word that comes up in this verse that makes me think of the Hebrew word imunah. What is imunah? It's faith. That is faith. Very good. Hebrew word 530. It's not translated that way in this verse, but that's the word. It's the word truth. In this, uh-huh. They're not valiant for the truth. They're not valiant for the faith. They're not defenders of the faith. But they're prophesying to people. Bringing God's message to them. It's not God's message. Let's look at some other ways Imunah gets translated to help us understand. Go to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Referring to the Lord, it says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of truth. There's that same word, imunah. And without injustice, righteous and upright is He. So He is a God of it says your truth, but that's he's a God of faith. He is a faithful God. When he speaks, you can believe him. That's why they're using Imunah in the verse in Jeremiah about liars. They have no respect for what is truth. You can't believe what they tell you. In Second Chronicles 19 is translated a little differently. So let's see how it's translated there. Saying Chronicles 19, verse 9. And he commanded them, saying, Thus you shall act in the fear of the Lord faithfully. There's Imunah. And with a loyal heart. Can you separate fear of the Lord from faith? No, you really can't. And that's going to be a problem for some people come Judgment Day. Faithfully. In verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 9, 2 Chronicles 19, verse 9. Do you see it now? Okay. Continuing the verse, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 3. For they proceed from evil to evil, meaning what? They don't sin and repent and sin and repent. They just continue to sin. 
They don't want to repent. They don't want righteousness. They just jump from sin to sin to sin. And they do not know me, says the Lord. Oh, that's terrifying. John 17, 3. To know God is to have eternal life. They do not know me. So that's a way of saying they're on the path to eternal judgment. Go to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. Verse 13. Like I said earlier, Matthew chapter 7 so heartbreaking and Matthew chapter 25 with this parable of the ten virgins for somebody to think they're on the path to heaven and wake up on judgment day and go I what? Right. Yeah. And how many times do people say to you, Daniel, you tell me that's what the Bible says, but that's not what my church teaches. Doctrine over Bible. Doctrine over Bible. Ugh. Exodus 33. I know it happens to you. It happens to me. It happens to all of us. But that's not what my church teaches. What did they write on my papers in seminary? You back it all up with scripture, but this is some Baptist doctrine. And what's the response from Wayne? Why not? If it's what the Bible, well, shut up. Okay. It is. Exodus 33, 13. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you. And that I might find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Let's break that verse down. That is mind-boggling. Now therefore, this is Moses, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that. What's the word that? Right, so that I may know you. If you do not know God's way, then how are you going to know God? This is Moses. Show me now your way that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight. Grace and mercy, right? Go back to Exodus 20. Although in your notes in past you've got many verses that say the very same thing. Exodus 20 verse 5 and 6. Exodus chapter 20 verses 5 and 6. You shall not bow down to them, referring to the idols, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, 
but showing mercy to thousands, that's of generations, to those who want, who love me, and keep my commandments. That's not a new concept. It's as ancient as the scriptures themselves. God does not promise to show mercy to sinners. They'll show mercy to those who repent, who used to be sinners. But that's why repentance is so important. If you are an unrepentant sinner, that was Proverbs 28.9. Then your prayer is an abomination. God's not going to hear it. Go to the book of Psalm, chapter 36. Psalm 36. And again, yeah, I get a lot of comments that say, Wayne, you could get a lot more done if you didn't wait for people to turn for, to read the scriptures themselves. But it's important that you read the scriptures yourself to know that your Bible says this. I'm not making this stuff up. I could make up anything. But when you see it in the word of God, what do you know it is? It's true. Yeah. Psalm 36, verse 10. Oh, continue your loving kindness. What's another word for loving kindness? Mercy. To. So it's not to everybody. To those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright in heart. So those who know you, what do you know about their hearts? They're upright. So what do we learn from this verse? God shows his loving kindness or his mercy to those who know him. We just read in Exodus 20 verse 5 that means to those who love me and keep my commandments. So that relates who know you upright in heart to those who Love me and keep my commandments of Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, and many other places. Go to Psalm 79. Psalm 79, verse 6. Are you ready? Psalm 79. It says, Psalm of Asaph. Pour out your wrath. Anybody know about the wrath of God? Who's it going to be poured out on? On nations that do not know you. And on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. Does God pour out his wrath on his children or on his enemies? His enemies. The nations that do not know you, those are God's enemies. They're not looking for God's blessing. They're looking out for God's wrath. That could possibly say Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 25. We'll see in a minute if that's what it says. Jeremiah 10.25, it is okay. 
pour out your fury on the Gentiles. What's the word Gentile mean? Pagans who do not know you. And on the families who do not call on your name. So it's not just nation by nation, but it's also people by people. For they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him, consumed him, made him his dwelling place desolate. Do you get the idea you want to know God? And you want him to know you? In Matthew 7.23, the Lord says, I never knew you who? You who practice lawlessness. I did not know you. Why? Because they did not know him. Or they would not have walked in lawlessness. Hosea chapter 8. They thought they knew him. That's exactly right. That's what scares me about Matthew 7. All those people on the broad road to destruction think they're saved going to heaven and they're not because they've been misled by the false teachers. And people say, well, then God won't hold them accountable, just the false teachers. But that's not what the scripture says. It is. We're going to see the very same thing in Jeremiah. It's like you, you see all these people, and, and Jeremiah, it's like you see the, the train about to go off the cliff in slow motion, and Jeremiah's you know, sitting here waving his hands and trying to warn the people. And they're just yep. And other than source material for bird songs, what do we gather from Ecclesiastes? What's happened before happen will happen again. To everything... Turn, turn, yep. Hosea chapter 8. <laughs> Hosea chapter 8. What's that? Something about 7? I thought you said Matthew 7. I, I didn't say turn to it. I just said Matthew seven twenty three says. I know you guys have Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 23 memorized by now. You probably have it on a t-shirt at home. Hosea 8, verses 1 through 5. Set the trumpet to your mouth. Ooh. Literally, it says shofar. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Uh-oh, what's that verse in Psalm 119? It's time for you to act, O Lord. It's time for you to act, O Lord, for they have considered your law to be void. So Hosea 8.1 says, ooh, they rebelled against your law. It's time to bring in the, not the clowns, but the judgments. Verse 2, Israel will cry to me, my God, we know you. Same as Matthew chapter 7. Or say, no, no, Lord, we know you. What do you mean? We're innocent. It says, Israel has rejected the good. They've rejected the way of the Lord. They preferred, they chose to walk in sin. It says the enemy will pursue him. They set up kings, but not by me. They made princes, but I did not acknowledge them. From their silver and gold, they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Your calf is rejected, O Samaria. 
Uh-oh, what calves do they put up in Samaria? Golden calves, two of them. My anger is aroused against them. How long until they attain to innocence? For from Israel is even this, a workman made it, and it's not God. But the calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. And then, I know Daniel will be surprised, but the next reference I put down is John 17.3. So go to John 17.3. He quoted it a few minutes ago, but I want you to put your eyes on it. John 17.3. I am especially drawn to verses that say things like, and this is, just like 1 John 3.4, sin is lawlessness. John 17.3 says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent. Know God, have eternal life. No, Yeshua, have eternal life. Wouldn't it be nice if the Bible gave us a test? 1 John chapter 2, let's go put eyes on it. First John chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. Looks like the pages have stopped turning and go to meeting land. It says, now by this we know that we know him. Is it important to know him? Yes, think of all the verses we just looked at. It's very important to know him. If we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. What part of that is unclear? Yet I've heard preacher after preacher read those very words and say, that's wrong. Don't listen to this. How can you look at the word of God and say that's wrong? Is it mistranslated? The translation here is actually just fine. So let's go back to Jeremiah. To chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. Everyone take heed to his neighbor. And that word neighbor is also the word friend. It's the same word in Hebrew. And do not trust any brother. So you can't trust your friends or your brothers. For every brother will utterly supplant... And every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They've taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Mm. Verses 4 and 5 mean you can't trust anybody in Jerusalem outside of Jeremiah. They are so corrupt. 
they're so set on lies, they're so set on self-service, that you can't believe a word they say. It goes right back to verse 3. They have bent their tongues for lies, like arrows in a bow. In which verse? In verse 4. It says, for every brother will utterly supplant. The word is Jacob, yeah. That's what the name Jacob means, is supplanter. Yeah, it's literally Yaakov, yeah. So, I mean, that, that goes back to when God calls Israel Jacob. This is what they're doing. Right. Before Jacob gets saved, he's Jacob. He's the supplanter. He's the conniver. He's the fink. Once he wrestles with God, comes face to face with God and, and is saved, then the name is changed to Israel. And after that, you'll find Jacob and Israel in the same verse occasionally. Jacob referring to unsaved, unrepentant, and Israel to the saved, the repentant. To say like Paul does in the book of Romans, they're not all Israel who say they're Israel. Yeah. You can literally translate that as for every brother will utterly Jacob. Yeah. Yeah, that's because every name in biblical Hebrew has a verb at its root. And that's what Jacob means, is supplanter. Yeah. But there's more to be gained from verse 5 than this, as much as that was helpful for verse 4. Look at the last half of verse 5. Well, let's start at the beginning. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth, for they have taught their tongue to speak lies. That's not unintentional, that's not oopsie, that's deliberate. They prefer the lie over the truth. They weary themselves to commit iniquity means they go out of their way to commit sin. They go out of their way to make sure they don't keep a commandment of God. Again, that's not an oopsie. It shows a state of mind. More importantly, a state of the heart. Do they love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and their neighbor as themselves? This is the antithesis of that, if I use the word antithesis right. And some English scholar out there will correct me, and if I'm wrong, <laughs> I'm sure. Let's add to this Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Verse 142. Psalm 119, verse 142. You know it well. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your Torah is truth. The word I want you to look at in this verse is everlasting. Does God's righteous requirements change over time? Have you ever been taught that it does? Scripture says it doesn't. Give me another verse in Psalm 119 that assures us that this is a correct interpretation. It's at the bottom of the right-hand page in the right-hand column. It's verse 89. Yep, forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. 
that means it's not going to change. That's a great thing. Also, Brother Wayne. Yeah. Yes, Rachel. Psalm one nineteen one sixty as well. Psalm one nineteen one twenty six. Daniel said, "It is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void." And you said one sixty. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Yep, verse 152, concerning your testimonies, I have known of all that you have founded them forever. <laughs> so pretty much every verse in Psalm 119 tells us that God's commandments are not going to vary from generation to generation. Oh, I wonder what God wants us to do in 2023. Well, exactly what he said in the beginning. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. But now, as we're coming short on time, I want you to look at verse 6 before we go, because it's right on point. Verse 6. Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9. Yep. Jeremiah 9. Verse 6. Your dwelling place. He's talking about the temple. It's still there, but only for another chapter or two. Then it's going away. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. What's another word for deceit? Lies. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. Refuse. It's a choice. Hold out two hands. Jeremiah is calling them to repent. The false prophets are calling them to continue in their sin. And which one do they listen to? To the left. The false prophets. Why? Because it appeases the flesh. Because that's the group that's telling them what they want to hear. No one wants to hear your sinning repent. But boy, sometimes we need to hear it. But the fact that they use the word they refuse, it means they know that they have a choice and they made the choice. They refuse to know me. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30. People ask me often, Wayne, why didn't God just make us where we have to? Yeah, God gives us free will. He wants us to choose him, but he will not force us to choose him. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. What a blessing it is to know that he gave me a choice. Yeah. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. That you may love the Lord your God. That you may obey his voice. That you may cling to him. For he is your life in the length of your days. So what is God telling us? He gives us a choice. Does he care which choice we make? Yes, he cares. He encourages to choose life. And he tells us why. 
He also tells us what that means. If you love the Lord your God, obey his voice and cling to him, are you choosing life or death? Choosing life. So you can't say I'm choosing life, but I will not love the Lord our God. I will not obey his voice. I will not cling to him. Mm. With that, unfortunately, we have, or fortunately, depending on your point of view, we have come to the end of our time. And we will pick up next week, Lord willing, in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 7.